Welcome to Into Theology. I'm joined with Dr. Professor Ian Clary. And Reverend Dr. Professor Reverend Dr. Professor Ian Clary. Sorry. Right Honorable. Right Honorable. Majesty. Majestic in all his professorial ways. Um, yeah, right. And we're continuing to uh, discuss the Summa of Thomas Aquinas. And we are in book one, question two, the existence <laughs> of God. We'll which I guess in about 10 years. Yeah, we'll be, I'm sure we'll be done very fast in 13 yeah. weeks or whatever. Um, this is, an, I guess, an important question because to establish a science in Thomas's context, the first thing you needed to do was to establish the subject that you're speaking of. In this case, it's the existence of God. And Thomas has already assumed God exists because of the Bible, uh, because of <laughs> Revelation. This is him sort of fulfilling the scientific task of explaining why it's reasonable that God exists and in what way it is reasonable. Maybe I won't say me, more well, than that. Say, but... It drives me crazy when you get people, you'll read it sometimes in textbooks um, or you'll hear certain, you know, critiques of, of Thomas as, oh, you know, like he's, he, you know, he's doing this natural theology that proves the, the existence of just the bare God of the philosophers. You know, all you get from Thomas is like some static unmoved mover. Mm -hmm. It's not the God of the Bible. And it's like, do you not know what he's actually doing here? You know, like he's, as you said, it's like he's establishing the reasonability of the subject that he's now going to spend a lot of time exploring its nature. <laughs> and so you just establish the existence of the thing that you're now going to describe what it is. And so he's not arguing for the bare God of the philosophers. He's arguing for a very Christian view of, of this God. Um, drives me nuts. And what's to add to your point... It almost seems like Aquinas wants to say, no, God's existence is not self-evident because it's an article of faith, but he's drawn to say the contrary mm. because of Romans 120. Because he goes to these counter-arguments like, yeah, it kind of makes sense that you, that God, even his existence is an article of faith known by revelation, but we need to be biblical. So his, his um, said contra is on the contrary on page 58 um, is... So 58, I guess it would be the second article, whether it can yeah. be demonstrated that God exists in question two. He said, contra is, on the contrary, the apostle <laughs> says, the invisible things of him are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Um, but this would not be unless the existence of God could be demonstrated through the things that are made. For the first thing we must know of anything is whether it exists. So he makes <laughs> two, two points there. One is, the first thing to know is whether it exists. That's the basics, the basic science thing of his age. But the second point is he's really drawn to do something like natural theology because the Bible compels him to do so. He's not drawn to it, as we know from the first question, because he's merely interested in doing natural theology. He's bound to do what scripture says as a Christian theologian and philosopher, although I don't think he would distinguish those things, to be honest. No. But... Yeah. But nonetheless, that's kind of how we're talking about him just in, in a 21st century setting. But rather because the Bible, Romans one twenty in particular, but there's tons of passages as well, says you, God can be understood by the things that are made. He necessarily affirms that through the effects, through the accredited effects of God, you can determine that God exists. That's just fascinating. It totally gainsays the whole argument that you laid out. Yeah. Yeah, it's... it's uh... Yeah, the 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 whole idea of a of a natural theology for him is is that hey, this like just makes sense that if God made this world, 
then of course you're just going to be able to know him from the things that he's made. And uh, obviously, even given what he said in question one, he's not he's not saying that that knowledge now is sufficient to save, uh, to know who this triune God is and, and all these sorts of things, but that there's a distinct correspondence between what is revealed in scriptural theology and what is revealed in natural theology. And um, it just, you know, I just... I just find it very frustrating when people say exactly the contrary of what he's doing, you know, in this text. Well, he makes the distinction, I think, between that God exists and um, what God is. Yeah. So basically, everyone can know that God exists through creation. But to know what he is, according to his essence, you need revelation. Yeah. And then, of course, saving knowledge would be revelation, too. But going back to what you said, it's actually worth pausing here. And I think we might do this a few times in this podcast. There are so many weird criticisms of Thomas Aquinas. And what you said, you know, he's willing to natural theology, not the Bible and so on, is is completely opposed to the words that he actually uses. Like you almost have to think, do the people who argue this just not read the words that he uses and like we're like I don't get it. Like they just kind of make it. Almost seems like it's made up. But I don't yeah. want to accuse someone of making it up just generally. But it's not from his obvious words or from his life. Like we noted in the introduction, I think he was only a university professor for I believe seven years. The rest of his time was basically being a Bible teacher. Yeah, and he has commentaries on I don't know how many books of the Bible, but a number of books of the Bible. I've read his commentaries on Ephesians, Galatians. Um, parts of his commentary on John, for example, like he's a Bible commentator and theologian. And because he views no, dis, uh, no opposition between what we might call faith and philosophy, but rather an ordering that philosophy is ordered to theology as a handmaid mm-hmm. into a queen, then he's able to engage in these things without, I wonder if that's actually the answer. People distinguish these things so far in their own minds. They assume that if he does any philosophy, he must be like, you know, in one camp or the other, yeah. where Aquinas is, is kind of uniting those things in his total argument. Well, I, I think, you, you know, I, I try as best as I can in ter- like in terms of my own writing to follow that kind of approach that's laid out by somebody like Quentin Skinner and the, the so-called Cambridge School of doing, you know, intellectual history. Where the, 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 the impetus behind Skinner's approach is to see things their way is kind of like the famous kind of quote about that is like, you're trying to get in the mind of the person that you're reading, you're trying to understand their cultural context, but you're trying to like just trace their argument out on its own terms and let it speak for itself. And I think what all, will often happen with the temptation is for all of us is when we approach various thinkers from the past is that we have our preconceived notions about what they must be saying. Um, and then we just read those into the text. So, you know, when somebody like a Bart or a Van Til is reading Thomas, I think that they're already coming with certain sets of preconceived notions about him and then kind of force him to say things that he's not saying. I mean, you see that in Van Tilianism, not, not just Van Til himself, but his followers. It's like, whoa. And I think he's getting that from Herman Doyabeard. Like, I don't think that Doy, I think Doyabeard's really kind of like, I, we talked about this before, is, is responsible for a lot of like the kind of more, recent reformed critiques of, of Thomas. Um, but when you actually just, I can remember, I remember this. Um, it was my, my whole kind of like history with, with Thomism. 
I remember first learning apologetics uh, by a professor who used R.C. Sproul, uh, mm-hmm. his classical apologetics textbook that he did with Gerstner and Lindsley. As like, this is the be all and end all. I was like, wow, this is awesome. And I'm reading all this, you know, and thinking it's great. And, and then I started to read Van Til because their, their book was a critique of Van Til. And I was like, wait a second. I don't know if Van Til is exactly saying the things that they think he's saying. So then I become like this hardcore Van Tilian. And then I'm like trashing Thomas uh, and thinking this is not reformed. You're going to be a Catholic next if you read Thomas Aquinas kind of thing. And then it's like, um, then I start to read Richard Muller. Right? And it's all these like guys that are just throwing you back and forth. And you see how Muller is just providing these close readings of texts kept this model. So then I'm starting to read these texts. And I'm like, wait, nobody's saying anything exactly the right way. Just just read these guys for their own sake. And now I'm like reading Thomas and the various types of Thomisms, whether it's Protestant or Reformed. You're like, oh, they're all kind of saying the same thing on these matters. And all this stuff, like as you've said in previous episodes here, it's just common sense. It's just making sense of basic reality. And it's just helping me live in in the world in a way that just makes sense of everything. And it's like, why don't we just read him on his own terms? Why, why do we have to read him through the lens of Sproul? Why do we have to read him through the lens of Van Til? Why do we have to read him through the lens of Bart or whoever it is? Let's just read him and really just see what he says. And then it's like, ah, oh, now it makes sense. Well, I only prefer to read him through the lens of Ian Clary. Um, <laughs> That's it. <laughs> on page 61, you made a really good point. I, maybe you could repeat it here. Uh-oh. Um, and I'll kind of make the point differently than you did. But the question is whether God exists. And he goes through two objections that God does not exist. And his, on the contrary, is fascinating, especially given the context of what we just said. How does he believe, like, how does he prove that God exists? What's the on, on the contrary? Just mention that, then you kind of talked about it already. Well, it's on the contrary here. I mean, it's it's classic. And it's, again, it's one of these things that absolutely drives me nuts about the critics of Thomas here. It's like, you know, so the question is whether God exists. He gives two examples, two, two objections uh, that can say why God doesn't exist. And then his on the contrary is not an appeal to, in an indirect way, it kind of is uh, an appeal to like Aristotle, right? Because in a sense, this is an appeal to God as pure being. But where does he go to, to learn about God as purest actus or pure being? Is that it's it, it's Exodus 3.14 in the burning bush. It is said in the person of God, I am who I am. And, you know... It's like, oh, he's appealing to the premier revelation of the divine name in scripture uh, where Moses encounters God in the burning bush. And how does God reveal himself? I am existence. I am just I am pure being. I have uh, more of a caveman take on this. I meaning less intelligent. You look like a caveman. So it makes I know sense. I do look like a caveman. <laughs> um, I just find it fascinating that does God exist? Here's the, the really strong counter arguments. Then his answer is. Yeah, because God said he exists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, God said, I am who I am. So, yeah. And, and but it goes back to this idea that his his authority here, it's a um, he's he actually has. I can't remember if it's here in the prior prior question, but he says appeals to authority are the weakest form of argument, yeah. except appeals to divine authority, <laughs> the strongest, strongest form of argument because it's God. <laughs> yeah. And therefore, while this is an appeal to authority, namely scripture, he's just saying God says he exists. So he does. Yeah. And that's entirely unsatisfying until you realize, but he's a Christian. Like, yeah. what do you expect? Yeah. And then he provides. He gives reasons. Elucidating what yeah. it means for God to exist. And uh, these are the famous, famous five ways of Thomas Aquinas, yeah. which again, you, you often heard argued as Thomas is trying to reason from 
natural revelation to God existing and therefore who he is. Well, I don't even know. Do people even want to use that word revelation? Like they just think that natural theology, like at least some of the worst critiques of of, of Thomas here is that natural theology, it's almost like as if it's not a revelation. Like I've heard some people we know personally who've actually, I've listened to podcasts where people are actually denying general revelation. It's like, is, is your, is your disdain, disdain for Thomas and Thomism, is it going to drive you to that point where you're actually now going to openly deny that, that, that general well, revelation exists? Wait a minute. Because you know that general yeah. revelation, it's a revelation, will actually tell you, per Romans 1, that God can be known by the things that are made. And to deny that God is day by day, night by night, wordlessly revealing himself to us. Psalm 19. Yeah, it's a... It's a seems deeply unchristian. Uh, not to say that someone's not a Christian who says that, but right. the idea is it's like God. I mean, Calvin calls the world the theater of God's glory. Yeah. And so you should be able to see that's part of the enjoyment of life. Calvin says it's a mirror, right? That when you actually hold it up, you see God reflected from it. Yeah. Herman <laughs> Bovink would also has a lot to say about general revelation yeah. and so on. Right. Yeah. It seems it's, yeah. Anyways, that's an odd thing, but even these five ways they're, they're not five demonstrations of natural theology from reason alone. They're ways of understanding God's existence. Yeah. And they don't tell you virtually anything about God. That's not the point because uh, Aquinas says, first thing you can, you can know God's created effects. You can understand the names of God in, in that's been revealed. And then from that, you can infer that he exists, but God's essence, what he really is, his attributes, his love, his peace, his justice, etc. That follows from after understanding that he does exist. So, I mean, he, he's really only able to prove through these five ways, if you want to call it proof, the basics that God exists. It's the same thing that Paul says is available to us in Romans 1. But he's going to use scripture and more resources to say who God is. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's that's the argument that he gives. What does Paul so, say again? His invisible power and, and attributes or something like that? Yeah, divine power is, is eternal power and divine and, and uh, oh, visible something invisible, invisible attributes. Oh, yeah. screwed up here now. I'm all wet. Um, what about so on on page fifty four? Uh, so I, you know he's on on, on fifty three. He's gonna he's gonna kind of set out what he's doing, right? He's giving us this threefold division in addressing the question of whether God exists, right? So whether whatever conver- concerns the divine essence, the distinction of persons. And then the processor, procession of creatures from this. And then he says, concerning the divine essence, there's these things, further three things that we need to look at here. Uh, his manner of existence uh, or how he doesn't uh, exist. Um, and then uh, his operations, things like that. Then he's So he's going to jump in on 54 to uh, the question, the first article then, of whether the existence of God is itself is self-evident. That's a, it's really curious how he kind of works through that, right? Because he's kind of saying yes and no. Um, I don't know. What did you think of, of how he kind of approaches that whole question of, of is God's exist is is the existence of God something that's self-evident? I think he um, wants to follow through some objections here. Yeah, it's it, he does say yes, no. It's it's. It, I mean, his basic conclusion is that God is self-evident to himself like he's completely reasonable fully it's yeah. fully self-evident but when it comes to us we still need to reason 
from God's created effects back up to God. And I think the reason he gets there is because of Romans one twenty. I don't think he gets there for other reasons. I think he struggles with this. I think Romans one twenty adds to the problem. I think that, you know, if we take seriously just the idea of divine incomprehensibility, that God just can't be known by human yeah. powers uh, of itself, right? Like my mind can't conceive of the incomprehensible God. And so that's why God makes a world that is stamped with his with his, his revelation in it so that through the effects we can, the mind, right, which it knows being through through the things themselves, right? The being of, of this coffee cup that I have in front of me, my mind is accessing its being. And I can now through sense perception actually know that this, the, the nature of this coffee oh. cup or something of its essence. So he says, like, yeah, God can be known self-evidently because he's most self-evident mm-hmm. to himself. Yet, because of who we are, even in terms of our creatureliness, and then the added problem of the noetic effects of sin, um, it, it's not self-evident to us. It's self-evident to him, but not self-evident to us. And that's why we know God through his effects. So, so here's something I wrote in the um, I answer that. So Aquinas says- Wait, a you thing... wrote the I answer that? He didn't Sorry, write Sorry, I wrote it? a note beside it. <laughs> a thing can be self-evident in either of two ways. On the one hand, self-evident in itself though not to us. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, self-evident in itself and to us. I wrote a note that said quantum gravity, meaning <laughs> so my point was that things are like Where quantum gravity. Self, goes. <laughs> well, it's self-evident, but quantum gravity and quantum research shows you that the nature of reality isn't exactly as we see with our eyes. Like it's not, yeah. you have to think about it and reason through it. Um, even thinking of like, even Einstein's theory of relativity, you know, Stuff like that is, it's not, you, it, once you think about it, it makes sense, but it's not immediately evident to our senses. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't come, to, we have to think through it. So that's the kind of thing that I, I believe he's getting at. And he also has to say, um, you know, Psalm 51, one or yeah. 52, one in his version, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And therefore, at least for some people, they can genuinely believe there's no God. And we've all met an atheist probably. Yeah. Um, they're not as common as religious people, but a lot of people genuinely believe God does not exist. So it's common sense, right? Yeah. That yeah, it's evident said, that God exists, but not always to us because we don't think right. about it. Yeah. And he says the opposite of the proposition God is, Deus est, can be mentally admitted, right? So he's saying there is a possibility to admit the opposite of the statement that God is. Uh, not because it can be true. It's just that it can be admitted. And so, therefore, uh, it's not necessarily because you can't deny a self-evident truth, right? It, it's you just, it's just impossible to do. And so, and then so then he makes that distinction of two kinds of 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 uh, of, of self-evident um, knowledge. And then on uh, on fifty six is where he's going to get into the question of the effects. Um, so he gives a quote, uh, a reference to Boethius. Um, and then he says, therefore, I say that this proposition, God exists of itself, is self-evident, for the predicate is the same as the subject, which is awesome, right? God what does the word God mean? <laughs> you know? Well, uh, and he's about he, to cite, I am who I am, Exodus 3.14, shortly. There you go. And uh, and so then, because God is his own existence, right? So that that's something that's marks out the creator creature distinction for us, right? God is his own. We don't We're we're as he's going to get into in the five ways we're contingent being God is his own existence. So because he's his own existence, as we'll hereafter be shown, 
uh, now, because we do not know the essence of God, the proposition is not self-evident to us, but needs to be, and this is the key word here, demonstrated, right? Are these five ways, are they proofs or are they demonstrations? Um, so it uh, needs to be demonstrated by things that are more known to us. So these, the effects, the things that God has made, which aren't like divorced from God himself, as though this is just like this neutral effect that's out there, the creation that hasn't got a direct link back to the creator as causes to an effect. Um, and so he says, as it needs to be demonstrated by things that are made known to us, though less known in their nature, namely by effects. And that's just so key to understanding everything that he's doing here, at least in, in my mind. It's like you have to you you have to have this knowledge of God by the things that are clearer to the human understanding, the things that God has made. Why? Because they're just in front of our face. <laughs> you know, it's like they're right here. And since we can't know God's essence directly because he's invisible, simple and so on, the way that we can come to know him is through uh, created effects. Yeah, the sun, there's made. a moon, all that kind of basic stuff that I have this a hand. Is why he, this, is, this is why he's got a pro. Like, it's interesting, right? That he's got this fundamental problem with Anselm. And uh, in his reply to objection two, uh, he, he goes right into it uh, on page 57 at the top. You know, Anselm gives us this, I mean, a brilliant argument. Uh, the, the so, you know, Kant referred to it as the ontological argument, um, you know, throughout the medieval period, just known as Anselm's argument. But you know, this so-called ontological argument is this idea that, you know, and, and it gets to the idea in something of what we even just said with Thomas here, like, because the predicate and the subject are the same thing, God is. Uh, so God is just existence. So of course, of course he exists, uh, that the word tells us that. Um, but he doesn't like how Anselm goes about that because Anselm's argument, this idea that uh, if God is that which uh, nothing greater can be conceived, only exists in the mind, but doesn't actually exist outside of the mind in reality. Well, you can conceive of a being that actually does exist in the mind and in reality, which would be greater. Uh, so therefore, God has to exist. Um, and so he doesn't like that, not because he really <clears throat> denies it, but that he thinks that Anselm's going about it the wrong way in that it's just a pure thought argument. And it's an a priori argument. And Thomas is arguing here and telling us, that these arguments have to be a posteriori. They have to be after our engagement with the effects of the world, not before it. And, it, and maybe so, I never noticed this before, but actually the reply to objection one might fit closer to what you're saying in, in objection two. Okay. Because he says that to know that God exists in a general and confused way is implanted in us by nature, inasmuch as God is man's beatitude, which means we're ordered towards God. Yep. Also, again, this goes back to the whole thing. There's a general and confused knowledge. I mean, that's exactly, I mean, Calvin says we have a seed of divinity in us yeah. and yet that our religion is corrupted. Um, that's, you know, anyways, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Well, I guess what I was getting at was we have this, although we are able to think and know that God exists, we can't, it's so confused and we can't see God's essence. And so there's a sense in which the, whatever this mental conception is that we're conceiving of, it's a, it's a wrong order. It's, I guess, an a priori argument. And yeah. that's not possible for us. And again, he'll cite the Bible to explain that Romans 1, 19 and 20. Although 1, 20 is what he cites. Yeah. Um, why does he cite? Sorry, I, I, he cites Hebrews 11. I kind of missed that. Oh, that's that's an objection. Never mind. Yeah, that's an objection. Yeah, objection one. Yeah, because he's saying because he's just said it needs to be demonstrated, you know, in his um, 
on 56 there, you know, we don't know the essence of God. The proposition is not self-evident to us, but needs to be demonstrated. And so then, so he's like, okay, he's establishing the need for the demonstration. Now in the second article, it's like, well, can it be? We've got this need to, to, to have to demonstrate that he exists. Can we do it? And so then that's 56 and 57. This is where it gets kind of like, I think I found that this is the most convoluted. It's not the right word, but you kind of really got to follow a little bit with what's being said here for, for this idea of, can it, can it be demonstrated that he exists? Cause he's using logic here. Um, you know, so his appeal, uh, is, 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 is appeal to authority again is the Romans one twenty text that you quoted and is on the contrary. And he says, uh, uh, but this would not be Romans one twenty would not be unless the existence of God could be demonstrated through the things that are made. Uh, for the first thing we must know of anything is whether it exists. And then he says, I answer that demonstration can be made in two ways. One is through the cause and is called a priori. And this is to argue for what is prior. Absolutely. The other is through the effect and is called a demonstration, called a demonstration, a posteriori. This is to argue uh, from what is prior relatively only to us. When an effect is better known to us than its cause, from the effect, we proceed to the knowledge of the cause. And from every effect, the existence of its proper cause can be demonstrated, so long as its effects are better known to us. Because since every effect depends upon its cause, if the effect exists, the cause must pre-exist. Hence, the existence of God, insofar as it is not self-evident to us, can be demonstrated from those of his effects which are known to us. So if it, he's not, again, he's not denying that God's knowledge is or the knowledge of God is self-evident. He says it is. It's knowledge. This is knowledge that God has of himself. This is pure self-evident knowledge. But for us who don't have that access to it, we have a need to be able to demonstrate that he exists, which is possible because of effects, because you can move from an effect back to a cause, especially if the effect is more clear to you. And so, um, yeah, we can actually show that he exists just from the things that he's made. Kreeft, somewhere in his notes, gave me an illustration that I found helpful. He, he said, you personally? What? So here you go, Wyatt. Yes, here <laughs> you go. you said it, sorry. <laughs> yes, thank you. He, he made the point that it's like you're trying to open a door and there's something impeding. No, 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 no. This is uh, Brian Davies. Oh, is it Brian Davies? Okay. Yeah. That's why yeah. I couldn't see. I was looking. I couldn't see it. I was yeah, like, yeah. Is Davies. It? Davies says okay. it. Never mind. He says, he it's says this it book here. This. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> I found that helpful because it's like, you know, there's something behind the door. Yeah. But you don't know what it is. You know that it's there. And you can kind of guess, okay, it's obviously a heavy object, heavy enough to prevent, prevent me from opening the door. I know that it exists. It's real because it's yeah. not letting me open the door. So I have to kind of reason from this sort of effect <laughs> to what the cause is. This is a, a post posterior argument yeah. in a sense. And yet... Um, it, that's as much knowledge as I can get. So hence you need revelation. You need there to be a, this is my own part of it, like a webcam in the other room to <laughs> yeah, stream right. towards you. So you know what the object is that's impeding the, the door from opening. Yeah. So I think like that might be like a, maybe like a, a dumb guy caveman way to think about it. Um, I actually had a, like this, I was telling you earlier, this was confusing to me. So I had to write like, like pictures of my book to understand <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> But uh, it does make sense. It just took me a little while to figure out what's the middle term and all that, all that jazz. But it, I it's think, interesting. Oh, go ahead. No, I just say I. Well, I'll just say that it makes a lot of sense because that is how we come to know that God exists. It's pretty straightforward. The heavens yeah. declare the glory of God. Yeah. Bible says because, it. I yeah. believe it. Good enough for me. And and like and we're kind of born into the world just with that 
knowledge. Like we just yeah. we look at creation and just think, yeah, God exists. Like, like kids just assume that there's some sort of transcendent being behind everything that's been made, whether they would articulate it that way, obviously they wouldn't, but, um, but it's like, it's almost like you have to kind of reason yourself away from that uh, instead of just having, it's like, it's, it's what could be referred to like Jacques Maritain refers to the intuition of being. And it's like, it's just, you have like, obviously this is, this is Thomas is arguing for demonstrative reasons why we believe that God exists. He's, you know, he's not proving the existence of God. He's just saying, this is why it's reasonable that we already believe that he exists. We already have this intuition of being. And now here we're being, he's showing us why that intuition that we have is actually just a true intuition. Kind of reminds me, and I, I'm going to probably misstate the argument, but Elvin Plantiga says like, <clears throat> it's just the existence of God is just as reasonable as the existence of other minds. Yeah. Meaning I don't really, I've never seen your mind, whatever that is. And yet I, it's common sense that when we're talking and you articulate words and sounds from your tongue and breath and mouth, and I hear them, that comes from your mind to some degree. And so I, I think that I'm talking to an individual who's a stable person. Well, not you and you're not stable, but most people are stable and that you're the same yesterday, today and tomorrow in terms of you're always Ian. Yeah. And yet I don't have empirical evidence that your mind is real. I just it's just common sense. And likewise, similar when it comes to God, I mean, his mind, quote unquote, like we know we can see his effects through all the created order. And it's just as reasonable to think that he exists as any of our minds exist. Yeah, it's something like that. I'm I'm sure I'm brutalizing the argument, but no, that's exactly what it is. Um, it's interesting. His reply to objection one on page fifty nine. You know when he's uh, he's saying wait, he, you know the wait one fifty nine. No fifty nine. Oh yes, that would make the sense. Yeah, reply to reply to objection one. Ah, um, on page fifty nine. <laughs> Got it. It's interesting. This whole idea of like this is the the preamble of faith uh, question. Uh, that's a big one. Um, you know, the existence of God and other like truths about God, which can be known by natural reason, are not articles of faith, but are preamble, uh, preambles to the articles. So articles of faith here, he's, that's a technical term that he's actually referring to things like the creeds. And uh, the creeds themselves start out not with any kind of demonstration that God exists. Funnily enough, the creeds just presuppose his existence. <laughs> And uh, mm, well, and so probably that, they were influenced by Van Til. Must be. And so um, so these aren't so 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 there, there's no article in the creed going, you know, giving us a demonstration for God's existence. It's just assumed. And that's why it's called a preamble to the articles of the preambles of faith. Uh, he says for faith presupposes natural knowledge, uh, even as grace presupposes nature and perfection presupposes uh, something that can be perfected. Nevertheless, there's nothing to prevent a man who cannot grasp a proof, accepting as a matter of faith, something which is in itself is capable of being scientifically known and demonstrated. Um, and so th this, this is, this idea here is that like, it's, this is why the human mind can know these things because they're, 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 they're they have to be presupposed. It's just the way that the human intellect is made. Can I um, just spin on that for a sec? Yep. The idea that faith presupposes natural knowledge is another way of saying, I think, that reality is the Bible's context. Mm -hmm. And so when you read in the Bible talks about the sun and the moon and the stars and the constellations and so on, you didn't first learn that they existed from the Bible. Right. You already knew they existed because they're real. And so the Bible speaks about the real world because it's that's its context. And you have to know 
what an ocean is, what a lake is, what sand is, to understand anything in the Bible. You don't learn what sand is by reading that there are there is sand in the Bible. Right. You know about it because there's sand. And this is actually true at a very basic level as well. When you just think of the, you have to, if you, we always talk about it's, you know, it's us in the Bible. Okay, but you have to learn to read. Yeah. And the Bible doesn't teach you how to read. Although you might use it as a tool to learn how to read, it doesn't teach you itself how to read. And there's much more than that. If you just keep going down the layers, you're reading the book of um, Jonah and there's a word boat. What does that mean? Right. And eventually you have to think, well, in fact, you sort of need to know a little bit of history because what is a boat, whatever, 3,000 years ago? And what is a Hebrew Hebrew word for boat? And then you realize, well, I'm actually relying on a Hebrew dictionary and historical research and archaeological data to even know what one word in the Bible is. And really, apart from that, you wouldn't have a full sense of what's going on. Yeah. And also because you generally have seen boats float in water. Had you never seen a boat float in water, that would probably feel like nonsense. You're like, what is he doing? And this is because it, the Bible's context is reality. And I think this is the kind and, of thing that he's getting at. It's so straightforward and commonsensical. And and to like compliment that, the idea there too is that like the mind can actually is made in such a way it has these these powers that actually allow it to know those things, mm-hmm. you know. So the idea is that the idea of a, of a boat or the essence of a boat comes into the mind as this idea of boatness. And I can, my mind can just access that because it just, its primary object is being. And so the being of a boat is actually intelligible into my mind. I have to have experience with boats and that through like the, the essence of, of that particular boat comes through my sense perception into my mind, but I can truly know it. And, uh, and so like, even what you're saying with like language there, like my mind is already made by God in such a way that I can just understand words. I don't actually have to learn how to understand words that just does it. Um, and so therefore, when it comes to things like knowing God, um, I can know God and his essence through those created effects in, in, a, in a like manner or an analogy, I should say. Well, even the idea of grace presupposes nature. Those natural, your natural ability to know God and the things of God is prepares you to understand what the gracious revelation of God is in Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you know that you need food and water or bread and wine prepares you to know the sacrament of the Eucharist. Yeah. So Grace. let's get, uh, we, we're running out of time, but let's like do one of the five ways. I was thinking maybe we could do the first. Oh yeah, then... I forgot we were doing it. Sorry, you're right. I forgot we talked about that. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, I thought we were ending here, so I was kind of just... Oh, I mean, we can end here too if you want. I mean, no, no, let's do the one. You're right. I just totally forgot. That's That was it. Okay. So interesting. So he's saying, you know, whether God exists on our, on the third article is the question that he's asking. He's given this, uh, you know, on the contrary from Exodus 3.14 in the burning bush. And then his I answer that is the existence of God can be proved in five ways. Mm-hmm. And so important to note here, not five different arguments, really. It's kind of like it's almost like five, five grades you know, of, 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 of one argument. Uh, it's a, it's what is sometimes referred to as a cosmological argument. And, uh, and he's moving kind of from the first way to the fifth way in terms of almost like a depth or a richness of understanding of one kind of argument. Can I summarize the first argument and then you can correct me? Yeah. The first argument is that God 
is a completely immobile space ghost. Unknowable. <laughs> completely unknowable. And there's nothing really to him. Like a statue. And everything else moves because he doesn't move. But at the but end of the day, he's kind of this boring space ghost, immobile thing. Yeah. And, he, and I think that's everything the moves, but there's that's no what way Aristotle he... says. Yeah, it must be because there's, you know, he everything is in motion, but he doesn't even know. He's not even aware that he's put things. In no, motion. it's just like a an unmoving car. He's immobile. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is everything funny. else is moving. It is funny, you know, the whole idea of like, because uh, he did you know, I summarize somebody... it right. You never referred. No, you did not summarize <laughs> it right. I, I, That's I assumed, not the argument. I, I wanted to assume that our, our listeners, the three of them that actually listen to us. Uh, You've already lost uh, one. Do your weird in a couple weeks ago, yeah, and then do, today you lost the Vantillion. Weird <laughs> um, No, this is obviously. I I hope that people can tell by the disdain in our sarcasm here that uh, that it is not an accurate reflection of him, but uh, or, or or what this argument is is actually saying. I mean, that, again, it's, this is where it goes back to just like read what the person says. Don't assume that oh. You know, Aristotle's. I don't read what he says. I read what he means. It's different. Yeah, you, you know, his read, read, a, you know, read a book like, you know, the failure of natural theology to find out what Thomas really means instead of reading him himself. You know, I, I, I'm convinced that you you can't read the words that he says to understand what he means. But you have to know what he means and then retroject that back on the words that he says. Exactly. It's a purely perfect method. That drives me nuts because that that's the this accusation that was made uh, in this idea that, you know, he is, he is utterly immobile. And so because of divine immobility, he really can't be a mover of other things. Well, but it's like, but do to you be know... fair, he's pure act and that, or sorry, he's a, uh, he's, he's simple. And to be simple yeah. means you're nothing. And so there's nothing right. there. Yeah. there. There's nothing. It's like, and how can not, from nothing, nothing comes. So how could God have created in the first yeah. place? But it's like, what is he actually saying in the first way? Ooh. Um, and and nobody potentially says, saying first, then actually. Yeah, well, let's find out. <laughs> oh, nice, 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 nice. Okay. Um, but um, to, to to make the claim that because uh, Thomas is arguing from the observation of motion and mo motion here, the word is just a reference to change that we see change, and he's calling it the most manifest of the five ways. So the, this is the clearest thing that we will jump to. This is what the mind immediately knows. Is that things are under in a state of change or in a state of becoming? But it's just that's just observation. So why are things in a state of change, or why is why is the universe in a state of becoming? He's going to argue. Well, there has to be a being that itself is in, is unmoved that brings about all others, all subsequent motion. And the reason this being has to be unmoved is because there's nothing outside of it that can bring about its motion. So in a sense, like. Yeah, God is immobile, meaning that there's no being outside of him that's greater than him hmm. that actually that actually moves upon him. Um, and and that, that should just make sense to us as Christians who say God's the highest being. Like there's nothing outside of God because of all the attributes that we know about him in terms of his immutability, in terms of his infinity and things like that. So there's nothing outside of God that can make motion happen to him. But does that mean that he's he's like in this weird static state? of immobility that means that he's just like this statue that we can't know, like this unmoved mover that just contemplates itself. And that's it. It's like, no, God's the source of his own motion. <laughs> he's, he's pure act, meaning he's like pure activity. It, it's the opposite of what some of these people are saying about Thomas's first way. And it, again, drives me absolutely crazy, but we, we should probably actually articulate what the first well, way is <laughs> on its own. On, well, let me just quickly first. fill in something you said, because he, He's citing Exodus 3 where God is the burning bush. So you might say, and this will contextualize what you're about to read. 
uh, a stick might be in potentially hot, but until you move fire to it, it doesn't become actually hot. Right. So there's there's this potential in a stick that it can change or be destroyed or whatever. But God is basically all fire all the time yeah. in this yeah. analogy. So it's not that he's just a, a boring stick somewhere. He is the fire all the time. Yeah. yeah. He is uh, who he is. Anyways, uh, yeah, maybe go, maybe read the motion argument a little bit. To yeah. Read. So we'll just read read this here. So page 65, he says, the first and more manifest way. So again, this is the clearest one that we see here. And he's going from the, those that are clearer and he's arguing down to things that are still manifest, but not as manifest. Uh, with, this, with the subsequent four ways. So he says, the first and more, more manifest way is the argument for motion. Uh, it is certain and evident to our senses that in the world, some things are in motion. Now, whatever is in motion is put in motion by another, meaning that, funnily enough, there's no such thing as an automobile. Hmm. When you think about it, right? Nothing is self-moved. We're like, well, I'm, you know, you, what's moving me right now? It's like, well, the all the parts of my body are acting on the other parts to put it in motion. And then my soul is actually acting upon all the material parts of my body to make my body move. But then you can extrapolate back. What is it that's causing my soul to do these things? And you argue your way back to like God, right? But nothing is in a state of self motion. It's impossible. So there's no, so I actually made a joke about that once in class. And then like two weeks later, some students had brought these stickers that, uh, you know, you see that birds aren't real stickers. You ever see those? This yeah. one is a picture of a car and it says automobiles aren't real. I was like, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also but birds aren't real. Birds aren't real. Yeah, they're all satellites. Um, so whatever is in motion is put in motion by another, for nothing can be in motion except it is in potentiality to that towards which it is in motion, whether a thing moves in as much as it is in act. Uh, for motion is nothing else than the reduction of something from potentiality to actuality, which is what you were illustrating with the, 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 the notion of a stick and heat. Um, but nothing can be reduced from potentiality to actuality except by something in a state of actuality. So something can't be in a state, a state of becoming and then act upon something else to bring it into a state of being. It has to be in a state of being first before it can move on something to put that, that, that thing in motion. Um, thus, that which is actually hot as fire makes wood, which is potentially hot, to be actually hot and thereby moves and changes it. Now, it is, not, it is not possible that the same thing should be at once in actuality and potentiality in the same respect, uh, but only in different respects. Otherwise, that would be a contradiction. And that, you know, Thomas is very strong following Aristotle on the idea of like the principle of, of, of non-contradiction. Um, so something can't be in the, same, in the same relationship to itself as being in a state of actuality. For what is actually hot cannot simultaneously be potentially hot. Um, but it is simultaneously potentially cold. So that's the different respect. It is therefore impossible that in the same respect and in the same way, a thing should be both mover and moved, that it should move itself. Therefore, whatever is in motion must be put in motion by another. If that by which it is put in motion be itself, uh, uh, be itself put in motion, then it also must needs be put in motion by another and that by another again. And this cannot go on to infinity. This is what's referred to as an infinite regress. He says, this cannot be go on to infinity because there would be no first mover and consequently no other mover. You don't get subsequent movers if you don't have a first mover. So the first mover is logically required for all subsequent motion. Uh, so he says, this cannot go on to infinity because then there'd be no uh, first mover no, and consequently no other mover. Seeing that subsequent movers move only in as much as they are put in motion by a first mover. 
as the staff moves only because it is put in motion by the hand. Therefore, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover put in motion by no other. And this everyone understands. So I feel the common sense. Everyone understands to be God. It's right? interesting, too, it's in his analogy that God is the first mover that is in motion. And yet the accusation is that he's immobile. Just as a quick side note. Yeah. Uh, just the language is interesting here. Well, I want to I want to read a quote. Um, this is um, from from my boy here that I'm, I'm, I'm getting into. Um, Garagou Lagrange. Um, he has in in his uh, in the first volume of uh, his uh, God, his existence. And I, his I wouldn't know. I only read Wayne Grudem. <laughs> there you go. Hey, look, I got wait. Oh, good. Where is he? Right there. Oh, and look at there he is again. Nice. We're cool. I'm totally good. <laughs> um, but Garagou, he has an appendix on the five ways in this uh, first volume. And, and and it's like these people that accuse Aquinas or even Aristotle, really, uh, but especially Aquinas of this notion of like immobility means that he's like static and there's no action in him or anything. Like Garagou, who's arguably the great the greatest modern interpreter or, or commentator, I probably a better way to put it, of uh, on Aqu of Aquinas, says says exactly what we've been saying here. Um, so pardon me for reading a paragraph here, but um in uh, in in this appendix, talking about the uh, the first way argument for motion, he says, uh, "We must therefore conclude that there is a prime mover who is not himself set in motion by a mover of a higher order, and whom we call God. The supreme mover is immobile, not with an immo immobility of an inferior kind or the inertia of passive potency, which implies far more of imperfection than motion itself." but with an immobility of a nobler kind, namely that of act, which has no need of being pre-moved or conditioned so that it may act. In other words, we must admit the existence of a prime mover who acts by himself, who has never been reduced from potentiality to act, but who is his own activity, his own action, and consequently his very own being. For action presupposes being, and the mode of action follows the mode of being. The prime and most universal mover of bodies and of spirits must therefore be pure act without any admixture of potentiality capable of further determination, and consequently free from all imperfection, both with regard to action and with regard to being. In other words, it, or rather he, must be self-subsisting being. And you're thinking, to, I'm thinking to myself, I'm reading this. I'm like, how on earth does anybody think that Thomas or Thomism thinks or argues that God is immobile in the sense that he has been caricatured, right? Is that God is his own action. He is his own being. And being is the purest of activities, hence Exodus 3.14. So to, to, to make these sorts of claims about divine immobility is just a fundamental failure to, to actually understand something, this is pretty basic. I'm rant. My rant is over. I really appreciate I really your rant. Your I think this is a, a wonderful place to stop. And we'll, I guess we'll tackle the five ways in general next time. Does that sound good? Yeah, we'll hit the other four.